Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome to Changing Places, a periodic podcast focused on how the places we create are agents for transformative social change. I'm your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today we're joined by Dr. Dania Ramore, Research Assistant Professor of City and Metropolitan Planning and Director of the Environmental Dispute Resolution Program in the Wallace Stegner Center at the University of Utah. Danya's work and research focus on supporting more collaborative decision-making and stakeholder engagement in the context of science-intensive environmental issues, with a particular focus on climate-related risk management, water resource management, and mixed land-use planning. Her research work has focused on gateway and natural amenity communities in the Intermountain West. These communities have seen amenity migration, people seeking locations with lakes, skiing, or national parks for some time, but have seen a spike with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and the rise of remote work, becoming so-called Zoom towns. Thank you for joining us today, Danya. My pleasure. So first, why don't we um, get down to some terms and definitions for our discussion? So what is amenity migration and what is a Zoom town? Amenity migration is basically a term we use to talk about the intentional relocation of people for desirable environmental or sociocultural amenities. So as you alluded before, that might be trying to relocate closer to a ski area, a national park, or just to a cool small town that offers a quality of life that maybe you didn't have where you were at before. And that amenity migration is a phenomenon that is by no means new and to a large extent, has been expedited in the last year or so due to, as you mentioned, COVID-19. And people wanting to get out of cities, if we're not a great place to be during a pandemic and a shutdown, and instead be closer to outdoor recreation opportunities, places with a higher quality of life, or just places that were a lot easier to be during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that potential for amenity migration was greatly expedited by the ability of many people to work remotely. So that leads to this idea of a Zoom town, which is a term that has emerged in the last year or so to describe communities that are attracting remote workers, these people who can and maybe do most of their work all virtually via Zoom and other virtual platforms. And I think it's actually worth noting that the concept of a Zoom town is a play on the concept of a boom town, which is particularly interesting in light of the fact that at least here in the West, many of the places that are now becoming Zoom towns were once heavily reliant on resource extraction, maybe minerals, and right. were actually at one time a boom town. Right, right. So the resources that made these places boom towns a long time ago are actually part of what's now making them boom towns, their natural amenities. That's really interesting. The, the nature of this demographic change on these small towns uh, is profound and dynamic. Some of your work illustrates that the migration increases housing prices uh, and diminishes available housing stock which then, of course, has the ripple effect of town workers now commuting further and thereby exacerbating the transportation issues that sometimes exist in these towns. So could you walk us through the challenges and opportunities this rapid change is having on communities such as, say, um, Sandpoint, Idaho or Whitefish, Montana? 
Yeah, and I actually had the good opportunity in the last month to be in both Sandpoint, which is my hometown in northern Idaho, and in Whitefish, Montana, which is in western Montana. So I have been seeing some of these things on the ground and had a chance to talk with people who are now experiencing them very much in person. So I think the story that's worth telling is that a lot of these communities, which we call gateway and natural amenity region communities, communities that are either gateways to national parks or other major natural amenities, or are just desirable because of their surrounding natural amenities for both Sandpoint and Whitefish, that's ski area, lakes, rivers, a lot of public land. For years, these communities have been popular places to live and visit, and that's part of why we got interested in studying them. We were starting to see what we call big city problems emerging in these small towns. Mm -hmm. The town of Sandpoint, for example, is about 8,000 people. And uh, as you're alluding to, we're now seeing some major housing issues, cost of living issues, transportation issues, things that we're more accustomed to seeing in urban and metropolitan areas. So we got interested in studying these communities years ago and really had the good opportunity in 2018 to do a regional survey and understand better what's going on in these gateway and natural amenity region communities, or GNAR, we call them NAR communities, throughout the West. And what we were seeing in 2018 is that a lot of these places, Sandpoint and Whitefish both included in that, were already having some notable, and in the case of places like Moab, Utah, or Jackson, Wyoming, extreme issues with housing affordability, the ability of workers, not just service industry workers like people working in restaurants, Mm -hmm. but also white-collar workers, including even doctors in some places like Aspen, seeing the difficulty of these kinds of workers being able to find housing in or near the community they wanted to work in and being able to live and be there. So we were already seeing housing affordability issues as well as also some extreme transportation issues. Again, in Moab, Utah, as an example, sometimes it takes an hour to get across the small town of Moab because there are so many visitors and people moving through the community that's just congested and the small town basically becomes totally gridlocked. Right. So we were already seeing that in 2018 and we're able to document that this is a pretty pervasive issue for these kinds of high natural amenity communities with over 50% of our respondents to our survey, so um, 50% of people representing 264 different NAR communities in 2018 prior to COVID, saying that their community had very to extreme issues, very, very, um, very significant to extreme issues with housing affordability and with cost of living related to wages. So we were seeing that in 2018. Mm And then flash forward to COVID-19 and everything gets shut down. That included the service industries in these communities. Some of them, such as Moab, had to just totally shut down to avoid the possibility of a major health crisis. We saw that in spring of 2020. And then after that crisis came the fact that all the remote workers realized they didn't have to be in their cities anymore. So we had people from Silicon Valley or New York relocating temporarily or permanently. And it looks like many of them might be permanently coming to stay too many of these communities, whether it be Moab or Whitefish, Montana, Sandpoint, Idaho. And with those people came big incomes. So you have many people who are earning well over $100,000, often well over $200,000, moving into these small communities where often the local per capita income, I can speak for Sandpoint, it's $20,000 per person per year. Wow. And when you think about what it means for a community where the local per capita income is $20,000 a year, to have then people who have $200,000 a year or more of annual income moving into your community, what does that do to the housing affordability? Right, right. right. We already saw housing affordability prior to this, and that has just skyrocketed. So some of these issues we were seeing in 2018 have basically been put on steroids 
And in addition to that, a lot of the communities that were already feeling the pressure, people started to realize, wow, housing's getting really uh, totally unreachable in Jackson, Wyoming. So now we're going to start focusing on Driggs, Idaho, which is just over the path from, from Jackson. So we're also starting to see what we're calling a spillover effect, both in that some communities that weren't feeling the heat prior to COVID are now feeling the heat. Mm-hmm. And the areas that were already feeling the heat, workers are having to relocate outside of the community and to move into the community, often creating basically a situation where people are, are commuting themselves 50, 100 miles into work because they can't live anywhere near their place of work because it's gotten so expensive. Right. And I'd just like to circle back to the fact that we're used to seeing some of these issues in big cities, but what we're now seeing in these high natural amenity communities is that big city phenomenon. And often these places don't have the same resources and capacity to deal with some of these challenges that you see in a metropolitan area. Some of these places have very few, if any, planning staff or paid public officials. I just learned that the town of Whitefish apparently has a volunteer mayor. They're now dealing with an acute housing crisis. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is in some ways this is a phenomenon we're familiar with, but it looks really different because of the nature of these communities. Really, really interesting. You know, uh, several years ago, you started uh, an initiative and you referred to the the Gateway and Natural Region uh, Initiative, or NAR, to explore and address these issues. And so, you know, given, I I think you've referred to it as kind of the heat these communities are feeling in terms of housing and transportation and cost of living. Could you you tell us more about this initiative, what you're doing, what's intent is, and how it might provide understanding and assistance to communities? Absolutely. So I consider myself a pracademic, meaning I'm through academic work, I do research, I teach, but I'm also very heavily focused on practice and trying to really get out there in communities and help provide them support and help them deal with their challenges in a very applied way. And the NAR initiative, the Gateway and Natural Amenity Region Initiative, is in itself a very pracademic organization. And again, years ago, recognizing what was starting to happen in places like my hometown, Sandpoint, Idaho, other communities we work with, Moab, Springdale, Utah, outside of Zion National Park. We got this idea, me and colleagues, including colleagues at University of Arizona, colleagues at Utah State University, got the idea that we really wanted to be helpful to these places, recognizing the kind of capacity limitations I just mentioned. And we, being academic-oriented people, figured we could best do that through a blend of research and better understanding what's really going on in these places and developing evidence-based ideas of what's going on, but also then what would be helpful, mm-hmm. tying that to education, really getting students out in these communities, helping to provide additional resources to these communities through engaging students and other educational forms, and then really through technical assistance and actually trying to provide almost extension-like support for these places. And from that idea was born this NAR initiative, and it really is built on those three pillars of research, education, and technical assistance. And the NAR initiative really was an idea for a number of years, but launched last spring with the onset of COVID. And we just saw the writing on the wall back last spring. I mobilized my team and said, this is happening. Here's what we think is going to happen long term. These places are going to have this economic impact from really having to shut down. And then they're likely to get even more desirable places to become more desirable places to live and visit. And I don't consider myself prescient, but we did see this coming So we really launched the initiative last spring. We were able to secure a little bit of funding from the North Face, the company, and some others to really help us do that. And in the last year and a half, I've built this infrastructure where we now have an online toolkit that we're still actively building and developing with other partners 
that provides resources for NAR communities throughout the West. And actually, we've looked elsewhere. Other communities, like in the East, are looking to our toolkit and other resources. And the toolkit has model ordinances, lessons learned from other communities, case studies, a variety of tools that these communities can access, especially those that don't have a lot of public officials. Now they can hopefully more easily access some tools to help them deal with their challenges. And we're constantly trying to better understand what the needs are and build out the toolkit to be helpful. We've also done a lot of educational efforts, particularly trying to reach out to communities uh, through webinars. We ran our mm-hmm. first webinar series last fall focused on amenity migration, what it means, what it means for these communities, and sharing some of the stories of communities that have been experiencing amenity migration for quite a long time, so that places that are just starting to really see this could get a sense of what's coming their way. Our webinar series this last spring was on housing, knowing that that's just a critical issue in these communities. Right. All of those webinars are recorded. They're freely available on the NAR Initiative website, and that is a whole other source of new tools that we have, and we'll continue to provide webinars and other more synchronous learning opportunities or asynchronous learning opportunities. And then right now, we're really focused on launching a new research initiative to dig deeper into this interconnected housing, transportation, and land use challenge we're seeing in these communities. Mm-hmm. And I alluded to this before in talking about as housing gets more expensive, as people want to live in the community, maybe buy a second house in the community, then you start to see a lot of your workers and others who don't have incomes that are on par with those who are moving into the community or buying property in the community, they get pushed out. So again, that spillover effect. And with that comes these transportation issues of now you've got to get a lot of workers into your community from outlying areas. That starts to have a lot of spin-off impacts, whether it be more impacts on wildlife because you have a lot more cars commuting through high wildlife areas, safety issues, just to go back to the example of the Jackson area spill over to Driggs, Idaho. People who are coming over from Idaho into Jackson, Wyoming have to cross over a very big mountain pass. Right. That path gets shut down. Parents get stuck in Jackson when their kids are over in Driggs, Idaho. Or it's just a concern about <clears throat> traveling through uh, avalanche area. Right. So you start to get these public health concerns. Another example of that in the Springdale area right outside of Zion National Park, you get a lineup of miles of cars trying to get into National Park, blocking up the community. And that community worries about what happens if somebody has a heart attack in that lineup of cars. How do you yeah. get emergency personnel to them when they can't really move on the road? Right. So there are all these spin-off health concerns, public health concerns, risk concerns. And then there's just the quality of life concern. What does it mean when you're workers and not just your restaurant workers, but your teachers and maybe even your doctors can't live in your community. Mm-hmm. What does that do to the social fabric of your community? Um, so there's the that concern of this new spillover effect. And then just how do you get people from place to place? A lot of these communities, despite being pretty small, are looking at transit systems. Like I said, big city challenges in small towns, but what does a transit system look like in a small town? How do you fund that when a lot of funding may not be particularly applicable to your community. So looking at that, and then just these land use issues related to it. I know in the Sandpoint area, my hometown, there's concern about urban sprawl, Mm. even though it's a town of 8,000 people. Interesting. And one of the things that makes these areas such desirable places to live and visit is their open land, their trails, their recreation opportunities. And if you don't plan for growth, you could lose those things. You could very easily compromise the things that make your community such a special place in the first place. And that really gets into land use challenges. So we're just now, thankfully, with some funding from the National Institute for Transportation and Communities, going to launch a study to really get deep into those issues, to tell the stories of these communities, to 
hopefully derive lessons learned from those who have been experiencing it for to some extent for decades. And to really help places like Sandpoint and Whitefish and some of these other communities that are just starting to experience this, hopefully not repeat the mistakes other communities have made. For example, I've heard repeatedly from Moab, there's a lot of things they wish they'd done 20 years ago. Right. And now they feel their hands are somewhat tied in what they can do. And hopefully we can help communities avoid that, but also help the Moab. Like this is still an ongoing issue for them and we want to develop tools and resources that are evidence-based to really help them deal with these challenges. Yeah, speaking of, uh, I mean, what you've talked about in terms of the the webinars and the toolkit, I can only imagine how useful that is for for these uh, these communities. But you also mentioned engagement of students, and so I was wondering if I could ask you, kind of, did you, do you have an example of how a student might engage with these communities, or how you imagine it happening? Yeah, we we try to provide many different opportunities that meet the needs of students, and some examples how of how past students have been involved. We've had students work with our research initiatives, being graduate assistants or undergraduate assistants, helping us do the research. We've written up a lot of our findings with students. So for students who are more interested in that research side, we've given a lot of engagement that way. There's also been a lot of engagement of students in helping to develop the idea for the toolkit, build tools. So if a student comes to us and they're really interested in e-bike share programs, mm-hmm. we love to engage them in building some tools to help communities learn about e-bike share programs, what they could learn from places like Park City that have been doing this. So we've had a lot of involvement of students in helping to build tools, help us find tools, get things on the toolkit. And then we've also just connected students to these communities, and we'll be doing this to a large extent with this new research initiative we're launching, where we'll hopefully have a student working directly with the community, learning about their challenges, doing some research on it, but also really working with that community to help them figure out where do you go from here? You know, how do you report on these issues? And so really getting our students, especially those in planning, lined up with the planners in these communities. It's been something that our initiatives have gotten really good at doing because we have so many of these community partners we're working with all the time. And one thing I think fun to note is that the students who have worked with us, especially those that worked with in planning, have had a 100% success rate at getting jobs in these kinds of communities if they want to because there are no planning programs other than ours at the University of Utah that really have expertise in this area. This whole big city challenges in small towns is a very unique phenomenon. And for, com- for planning programs, plan- preparing planners to go out and work in rural communities, they're not really getting exposure to these acute housing affordability issues or transit questions. And planners plan- training up to work in big cities don't quite understand that really unique, difficult context of a small town where you might be the only planner doing everything and trying to think about long-range planning at the same time as you're dealing with building permit stamping. So it's been really exciting to see that the students working with us are trained up to meet this very unique need. And as a result, we've had students go on to work in Driggs, Idaho, Missoula, County, Montana, places like Bend, Oregon, which at one point in time was a small town and now is a big, big right. gateway in natural amenity region community. Uh, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. I wanted to ask you about two phrases that have occurred as I've explored this work. And first is one that's probably um, understandable to the audience, given some of the comments about about Moab at this point, which is, quote, we don't want to become Moab. Now, let me stop there and say, you know, I visited Moab. It's a fantastic community with a lot going for it. But it does clearly, as you have mentioned, have some planning issues that makes its livability suffer and certainly transportation's at the top of the list. But the second quote I was interested in as well is, quote, how to get people to plug into community not just the Wi-Fi. Would you be willing to take each of these phrases in turn and, and tell us what they mean in terms of amenity communities? 
Absolutely. The first one, I'll try to channel the thoughts of people who feel that way, probably channeling a little bit. The second one is actually a phrase that one of the PhD students in our planning department, Zachariah Levine, who happened to, he lives in Moab, he's worked with the county there. He came up with that phrase. So I want to give him credit for that. I think it's a really wonderful phrase. So to pick up first on that first phrase of we don't want to become Moab. Interestingly, in our 2018 survey of NAR communities, we asked the question of what community do you want to be like and what community do you not want to be like, knowing that this was an interesting topic for these communities. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these communities said they wanted to be like themselves, maybe like their community a few years ago, maybe an improved version of the community. But that was the most common reframe we heard when we asked that question. When we asked what community do you not want to be like, we heard a lot of Aspen, Vale, and Moab, and Jackson. Those were the ones that came up a lot. And having talked with a lot of people and explored this idea a bit more, I think what people are getting at is they don't want their community to become totally unaffordable for their quote-unquote locals, the people who've been there a long time, the local workers. They don't want their community to get totally built out or, say, in the case of uh, the Jackson, Vale, and Aspen to become sort of a playground for the rich. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of those things that are driving that that thought. When it comes to Moab, I think it's a little bit different. Moab is such a unique community. I think part of what people are thinking about is just how overrun that community has become. Right. I think the challenges in Moab are still actually much more tied to visitation than growth and people moving in and buying property, although that's starting to change. And so I think what people are in some ways saying is, you know, Moab used to be such a great place to go to get away from people in this cute town where you could go into town and get some good food, but you could also go out and bike and not see a ton of people. Right. And now it just feels swamped. And like I said, it can take an hour. I've heard crazy stories of just trying to get across Moab, which is still a small town. And so I think that's what people are getting at is they just don't want to feel these acute big city challenges in small towns. And with Moab, it looks a little different than it might in Jackson or Dale or Aspen. But I think the sentiment is very much the same. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think worth noting is, as you, you said, Moab's still a fantastic community. There's a reason people are still going there and, and doing so in droves. I think what's notable is that for those who have lived in Moab for decades, the community's really changed. Sure. And I think that's part of what concerns people. And change is natural. One thing we have to talk about these communities is there are a lot of people who don't want their community to change. They don't want it to grow. But unfortunately, you don't get to close the door. So that's not a tool you have in your toolkit. The tools you do have are good planning, land use planning, zoning, ordinances, economic development strategies. How are you going to market your community? Are you going to plan for growth or are you just going to let it happen to you? Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of these places is because they get caught in this, we don't want to grow versus we're growing, we have to deal with it, conflict. They don't use the tools they have in their toolkit and growth just happens to them and the things that they hold dear are at risk. And I think that's what's happening in Moab. So I think that's a really important thing to emphasize is you may not be able to not become Moab in terms of having a lot of growth and visitation. That's not necessarily something you get to control. Right. But you can not become Moab in that you can think about what are effective transportation systems. We have a lot more people on our roads. What are ways we can protect worker housing, the attainability of housing, even if we have more wealth moving into our community? These are things we can talk about and work on. And if we do so proactively versus after it's already hit us, we have a lot more options. And as I said, I think Moab feels its hands are a little bit tied because the issues are so acute, they're just trying to keep their heads above water. Right. So in some ways, segues into this next, uh, quote, which is how to get people to plug into the community and not just the Wi-Fi. 
with these remote workers coming into these communities, and I want to know amenity migration is not just remote workers. There's also retirees. There's people who are just buying second homes, maybe some people buying homes and turning them into short-term rentals and not even living in the community. So the pressure on the community is not just remote workers. But for those remote workers, I think it is pretty easy to relocate from Seattle or San Francisco area or New York into a community and enjoy the recreation opportunities, maybe go get coffee in town, but not really plug into the schools and the community Mm -hmm. fabric and Mm -hmm. the actual paying for the infrastructure in the community. And depending on how the tax structure is set up in these communities, these communities may not actually get a lot of benefit from the influx of this wealth into their community. So there might be a lot of people with a lot more money moving into your community, but it might not actually lead to a lot more tax money or other resources to deal with your infrastructure challenges. And so that's all those things together, I think, point towards when people are moving into these communities, they, I think, need to be really mindful of the impact. What does it mean if I earn $200,000 a year and I move into a community where people on average earn $20,000 a year? How can I offset some of the potentially very negative impacts of my in-migration? And not that it's my fault per se, and it does have an impact. And even thinking about if I have that kind of wealth, it's quite easy to buy a few houses, turn them into short-term rentals, which is a very lucrative thing to do in many of these communities because there's a lot of visitors. But that also has impact. We know once a certain portion of a community goes to short-term rentals like Airbnb and VRBO, most other long-term residents want to move out because there's no neighborhood anymore. And so just thinking about those impacts and how do you offset those? How do you not create all these negative externalities? What can you do to help protect the things that make the community so special in the first place, both the natural amenities and also the community character? Like that's often what we hear people really love about these communities, their small town feel, their community character. How do you protect that and really invest in the fabric of the community and not just become potentially a burden to it? And I think that's really what it means to plug into the community, not just the Wi-Fi. What that looks like could mean a lot of things. I think the main thing is just being thoughtful and intentional about it. You know, th- this is just an unbelievably fascinating uh, topic. If if people wanted to find out more or wanted the NAR initiative to help their community out, where might they go to learn more? We have a great website. You can find it at www.usu.edu backslash G-N-A-R. It's the NAR initiative. We are officially based at Utah State University because it's a land-grant school and has extensions, so we run the NAR initiative out of there because it's really good infrastructure for it. So you can find us online by either just searching NAR initiative or going to that website. And we really do just encourage anybody who's interested in supporting this work, being involved in the work, has ideas for how we can be more helpful to get involved. And the NAR initiative is truly a collaborative effort, a partnership effort, so we are always looking for new partners who can help us achieve our mission. That's great. So last question for you. As you know, our college is the first architecture and planning college in the nation to espouse an ethic of care to underlie our professional education. So why do you care and why do you think others should care about this phenomenon of amenity migration and the rise of so-called Zoom towns in our beautiful Intermountain West? There are so many reasons. My main reason for caring is I'm from one of these communities. They're near and dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time in these places. I have a lot of friends in these places. And like many others who are involved in the initiative, I've seen how special these places are for those who live there, those who visit them. Like I said, they're highly desirable places to live and visit for a reason. And as a planner and as somebody who studies how wicked problems play out, especially if we don't get ahead of them. Like I said, for years I've been concerned about what's happening in the communities, what could happen, and now it's just really playing out in front of us. 
So I think for a lot of people like me working with these communities, trying to help them protect what makes them special is a work of passion and close to home. Even for people who aren't intimately familiar with these communities, I think it's really important to recognize what this means for the rural West. We're talking about a massive migration of people into the rural West, an area that largely is aridifying, an area that is home to many of our uh, most precious wildlife habitat areas and ecosystems, an area that's very prone to wildfire. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually, as a country, need to be thoughtful about what this kind of amenity migration, not just to these cute, small, wonderful towns that we like to visit want to keep that way, but just to the rural West, what this means and what risks this presents. I'm concerned about whether there's going to be enough water for some of these rapidly sure. growing places, especially again in their ridifying areas. So I think it's important for all of us to really think about in advance, and it could impact the places that we like to go visit, but also just places that um, aren't going to be very sustainable if we don't think about some of these things in advance. Danya, I can't thank you enough for joining us today uh, and for your efforts in being a leader in this new frontier of community planning. This has been utterly fascinating and quite clearly quite timely. Dr. Danya Ramore is a research assistant professor in the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting cap.utah.edu. I'd like to end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and for spreading the word using the hashtag ChangingPlaces. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diaz-Moore. Take care, everyone. 